This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. There are passages in Scripture, such as Psalm 110, Hebrews 7, and John chapter 17, that reflect something of the eternal relationship between the persons of the Trinity, and especially between the Father and the Son. In the Reformation, some of our writers began reflecting on these passages and others and drawing inferences from them. In post-Reformation Reformed theology, many of our theologians wrote about the eternal covenant of redemption, or the pactum salutis, between the Father and the Son, and sometimes including the Holy Spirit, in which the Father gave to the Son a people, and He, the Son, agreed to become their substitute and their Savior. That covenant is prior to the covenants of works and grace that we see worked out in Scripture in the covenant with Adam before the fall, the covenant of works, and the covenant with Adam and Noah and Abraham after the fall, or the covenant of grace. In modern reflections on covenant theology, however, the doctrine of the covenant of redemption, or the pactum salutis, has either been neglected or rejected as unbiblical and damaging to the doctrine of the Trinity. John Fesco is academic dean and professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and he's been investigating the history of the Reformed doctrine of the eternal covenant of redemption, and he has published two new books on this topic. The first is a work of historical theology, The Covenant of Redemption, Origins, Development, and Reception, and the second is The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. Both of these titles are available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is part two of our two-part episode with John Fesco discussing the doctrine of the covenant of redemption. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. It's good to be here, Scott, and thanks for having me back. It's been a while since we discussed this, so remind us again, when we say the term pactum salutis, or the covenant of redemption, what are we talking about? We're talking about the intra-Trinitarian eternal agreement among Father, Son in some formulations and among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in other formulations to bring about, to plan and bring about the redemption of the elect. What are some of the key terms or ideas that are involved in this notion of a covenant of redemption? For example, last time we discussed the term surety, Mm -hmm. but maybe we should go over that again quickly. And then there are other terms we use in English, but that are really Latin. For example, Mm -hmm. sponsor, Mm -hmm. sponsio, Mm -hmm. fideusio. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but I want the listener to have a sense of some of the terms so that when reading the Bible and you see the term surety, Mm -hmm. you've got a way to understand it, and then to have a feel for the way the Reformed writers in the 17th century, particularly in the 18th and even into the 19th century, talked about this eternal covenant between the Father and the Son. In terms of guarantor, for example, you see this, or surety, it appears in English translations of Hebrews 7.22 that says that Christ was appointed surety or made surety of a better covenant, guarantor of a better covenant. And the idea is that a guarantor or a surety, a sponsor, undertakes all of the legal obligations for a covenantal agreement. In this particular case, Christ steps forward to undertake both the penalties of the broken covenant law as well as to offer forth his obedience in fulfillment of the covenant law to bring about the redemption of the elect. As we said last time, this is not a Mm -hmm. feature of covenant theology with which everyone is familiar. One could have 
picked up a book or an article on covenant theology well into the 20th century, maybe through the whole 20th century, Mm -hmm. and not have seen any discussion of the covenant of redemption. So if it's so important, and it must be because you've written not one but two books (laughs) about it, and this second one that we're discussing is really focused principally on the biblical foundations and the theology of the covenant of redemption. Although, if the listener doesn't want to buy both of these, one is an academic volume Mm -hmm. that's really sort of intended for life libraries and Mm -hmm. scholars. It's pretty expensive. This volume that we're discussing is going to be more accessible, Mm -hmm. and it does have a nice historical section at the beginning. So Mm -hmm. if it's so important, how on earth did it come to be left out of treatments of covenant theology? I think I have two observations on that. The first is, is that, as you said, it was very commonplace, especially in the 17th century, as well as in the 18th century and to a certain degree in the 19th. But with the fundamental redefinition of classic categories such as covenant in 20th century theology among a number of Reformed theologians, they pushed out the category of the covenant of redemption. And interestingly enough, along with it, the covenant of works as well. And so that's, you know, one reason is that you have some people who really don't like the idea and they think that they have good theological and exegetical reasons as such, reasons that I don't agree with. But, you know, secondly, I think it's because among those who do hold to the doctrine, I think that it was just in one sense kind of assumed that oh, wow, look, it's so commonplace in the 17th century. Most everybody must be familiar with it today. In fact, one of the very few essays that I found on it was the essay that you wrote, Scott, along with Dave Van Drunen on the covenant before the covenants in uh, Covenant Pastoral Ministry and Justification, the uh, book that was the uh, consortium of essays put together by yourself from the Westminster Seminary faculty. And so that's one of the few essays recently on it. There are a couple of historical essays on the subject. But yeah, so those are the two main reasons. Reasons, either one, because of significant disagreement with it, or perhaps two, because people just commonly assume it and therefore don't feel the need or didn't think they need to discuss it. Okay, so John, the $64,000 question is, or perhaps we should account for inflation, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> sure. a $64 million question, yeah. is this, is it biblical? Absolutely. I think that as I went into uh, writing this book, I was uh, basing a lot of my conclusions upon historical research that I'd done and a lot of the exegesis that I had seen the 17th century theologians carry out. And I think I went into this thinking that this was biblical, and I came out of this absolutely steeled in my conviction that it's biblical and exegetical. To what passages did the earlier writers appeal mm-hmm. and why? And I'm thinking, for example, of some of the ones that you've mentioned and that you worked through, Hebrews 7.22, mm-hmm. Galatians 3.17, mm-hmm. and of course, maybe the classic place is Zechariah 6.13, mm-hmm. and you work on that very closely in your book, and then John 17. So mm-hmm. maybe we can work through some of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, are there other passages? I know in part one you mentioned that people appealed to a wide range of passages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as mentioned before in part one, uh, Luke twenty two twenty nine, I covenant to you a kingdom as my father covenanted to me a kingdom is perhaps one of the crystal clear statements. Sadly, it's not reflected in any of the English translations that I'm aware of, but the Greek says what the Greek says. As you mentioned, Zechariah six thirteen, many passages in the Gospel of John, but especially in John chapter 17, where Christ says, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Mentioned last episode, there was Psalm 2-7, I will tell of the decree or I will tell of the covenant. You are my son, today I've begotten you. Could also 
also throw into there Psalm 40, where it talks of the Messiah's obedience. You desire obedience rather than sacrifice. You have, you know, at least in the Hebrew, bored out my ears, or in terms of Hebrew's use of that, you have prepared a body for me. We could uh, also include in there Psalm 110 with the Messiah's appointment as both priest and king. Ephesians 1 is perhaps another one of those key texts. And I would also add to that, say, Isaiah 53, where, you know, the prophet talks about it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And the Hebrew term there for will doesn't simply mean desire, but rather I think the New English translation translates this well by saying it's the good plan of Yahweh to crush him. And in that whole passage, it talks about the Messiah, the suffering servant, bearing our iniquities and him making many to be accounted righteous. So right there you have the arrangement of the imputation of our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us in the good plan of Yahweh. So it's surprising, really, or it might be, how often not only that Scripture reflects on the relations between the Father and the Son Mm -hmm. from eternity, Mm -hmm. where we're given a glimpse Mm -hmm. into that reality, Mm -hmm. and secondly, how often those glimpses actually are in a covenantal context or use Mm -hmm. covenantal language. So this isn't something that you're sort of imposing on the text. You're sort of covenant crazy, Mm -hmm. and you see covenants everywhere. Right. You know, in all fairness, some Reformed theologians, I remember Hodge, for example, said, well, it may not be a covenant, it may be a human way of talking about it, but this is kind of the best way we figure about talking about it. I'd want to take it a step past that and say, no, it's a covenant, at least the way that the scriptures define and speak about it, and they're very clear on this. As I said, Luke 22, 29 is very clear. So it's not in any way do I believe a human imposition upon the text. In other words, well, this is the way we do things, therefore this must be the way God does things. No, the revelation is clear. It's coming from God to us, and it's revealing to us from God that these things occurred covenantally. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking with John Fesco about two new books that he has published on the doctrine of the covenant of redemption. Now, one of the most important passages in this whole discussion is one on which you spend some time in the second book. And tell us the title of the second book. The second book is called The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption, and God willing, it's the first installment of three, and they're tentatively titled The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption, The First Adam and the Covenant of Works, and The Last Adam and the Covenant of Grace. Okay, so it's part of a series Mm -hmm. on covenant theology and the history Mm -hmm. of redemption. Mm -hmm. So Zechariah Mm 6.13 in the ESV says, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, or of Yahweh, Mm -hmm. and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, Mm -hmm. and the council of peace— which is the place from which we get the Latin phrase that's sometimes used in this discussion, the Concilium Pacis, Mm -hmm. the council of peace shall be between them both. Mm -hmm. In modern times, the tendency has been to interpret all these kinds of passages in their historical context only, and to sort of say, well, we don't really know much about what's happening from eternity, so let's figure out how this works in the history of salvation. Mm -hmm. But I take it you're not satisfied with that. No, I think that... uh Perhaps it's an anti-supernatural kind of bias or an idea that they reject the organic inspiration of the scriptures of the entire canon, saying that the one Holy Spirit inspired it all. But yeah, you're right, that they want to kind of atomize the text and they want to say that, no, this is talking about the high priest and the kingly figure 
in the history of Israel at that point. Or some older commentators will say, well, no, this is talking about the unification of the Jews and Gentiles. And they offer a number of different explanations. But the simplest explanation that I can say for this, and then we could go into the details, is that what Zechariah sees in his vision is essentially a Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, and I've appointed you as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Zechariah sees in vision what David writes in the Psalms, in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, to which you just referred, Mm -hmm. the English doesn't always convey to us what's actually taking place place. Now, if we paying very close attention, mm-hmm. you can see it, mm-hmm. because in the English translation, the first name there, Lord, is mm-hmm. in small caps, mm-hmm. and that's a signal that behind that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So you have one person, Yahweh, in Psalm 110, and then you have a second person mm-hmm. in Psalm 110, and you'll see that in the English text, it simply says Lord in the usual way, although it's capitalized, mm-hmm. and that is another figure, evidently, mm-hmm. Adoni. Mm-hmm. So the listener might not have been aware that there is actually in the text a dialogue Mm -hmm. between two persons. Yeah. So the question is, when did this dialogue take place? That is the big question, yeah. You look at the Gospel of John, for example, he says, I've accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Well, when did the Father give him that work to do? Or Luke 22, 29, I covenant to you a kingdom as my Father covenanted to me a kingdom. Well, when did the Father covenant to Christ a kingdom? When did Yahweh say to David's Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? And what I argue in the book is to say that where you see all of these elements converge, I think, is in Ephesians 1. You know, before the foundations of the world, we were in love, we were predestined in Christ. Christ is that messianic title, that title from Psalm 2, the title associated with Psalm 110, so that in eternity, before the foundation of the world, the Son is designated as Christ, as Messiah, and the elect are joined to him in the decree. So that in my opinion, and in the opinion of others, I love Charles Hodge's commentary on Ephesians, for example, that he talks about the covenant of redemption in his commentary on that first chapter, and that it's Paul who places the time frame of all of this appointing and electing and covenanting in eternity, not in history. And just going back to Psalm 110 for a moment, Mm -hmm. all through the psalm, then there's this dialogue. Yahweh says, X will happen. Mm -hmm. And Adonai says in the parallel verse, Mm -hmm. I will do that. Mm -hmm. All the way through, except verse Mm 4, which is the center of the whole psalm, which isn't repeated. There's no parallel. And it all turns on this. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, he says to Adonai, Mm -hmm. are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here we see from the sort of traditional Reformed reading, an intersection of eternity mm-hmm. and history. Yeah. So that when Jesus fulfills his Melchizedekian priesthood, which we know from Hebrews, he's doing so in execution of an agreement he made with his Father on our behalf from all eternity. Absolutely. And I think what a lot of folks may not realize, for example, if you look at Psalm 105, verses 8 through 10, there the psalmist interchangeably uses the terms for oath, which is what Yahweh swears here to David's Adonai, to the Lord Jesus, and uses oath interchangeably with covenant. 
covenant, as well as even with decree. We don't want to say in terms of if the term isn't there, the doctrine isn't there. And we want to recognize that the term for covenant may not appear in Psalm 110, but it's terms synonymous with the idea so that what is a covenant but God's sworn oath, whether it's to us or in this case, whether it's to his son. So that, yeah, it's Yahweh swearing a covenantal oath to his son. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480- 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Even in our ordinary life, when we swear an oath, Mm -hmm. we're swearing a covenant. Mm -hmm. If you take an office, for example, if you're sworn into office as a police officer, you take an oath. If you're elected to political office, you take an oath. You put your hand on the Bible and you raise the other hand and you say, I will execute faithfully the office of President of the United States. I will uphold the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. And if you tried to say, well, I took an oath, but I didn't make any promises or I'm not covenanting. Mm -hmm. Well, that would be absurd, right? right? Because people do get prosecuted for violating their oath and breaking their covenant. Absolutely. So the covenant certainly is embedded, as you say, in Psalm 110. And this gets us back to what seems to be, I think for you, a really central passage, which is Ephesians 1. Yeah. And that's, uh, as you say, Hodge saw the covenant of redemption here. So fill in that picture a little bit, because this is a passage that I think has probably been formative for many of us as we're trying to figure out, you know, what do we think about election and salvation and grace? And we find ourselves going to places like Romans 9 and Ephesians 1. Mm-hmm. And so you're really adding to our understanding of Ephesians 1. Yeah, I think that you'd have to be you know, theologically blind to say that Paul is not discussing election, for example, it's so clear. Even as he chose us, verse 4, in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So as I said before here, the Son is identified as the Christ, as the Messiah in eternity before the foundation of the world. But not only that, any time that you see Christ, I always encourage my students to note this, it's not his last name. It's not John Smith. It's not Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed, which then says, well, what does that mean? Well, that's we go back, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. All of that Old Testament freight, if you will, gets connected and pulled along by what Paul is talking about so that there are deep subterranean prophetic streams that are kind of bursting forth out of the ground here of Ephesians when he says that you were predestined in Christ. I think a second idea here is especially appears in verse 14 when Paul's talking about the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. What do they mean inheritance? Well, some people I think loosely identify that with, you know, riches, wealth. And That's 
partially true. I mean, the scriptures do describe eternal life in those terms, but there it's a term that the Septuagint uses for the description of the inheritance of the promised land. And that if you look at passages such as Deuteronomy 17, where the king was inaugurated, was supposed to copy the book of the law, was supposed to obey it, and that if he obeyed, life would be well for his children and it would be long life in the land. They would retain their inheritance of the land. And so what I think what Paul does here is he raises the whole discussion a key, if you will, and he says, it's Christ the King who has obeyed and secured our redemption and has secured for us eternal life, our inheritance, and it's his representative obedience and suffering, which was appointed in eternity in the covenant of redemption to bring about the elect, you know, the salvation of the elect. So in this sense, I think that Ephesians 1 is a rich, rich, rich passage that talks about these things. And if you take into account that Zechariah 6.13 spoke of the king priest building the temple, that later on in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the temple and that it rests upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And it even, as Zechariah 6, talks about people coming from afar and the Gentiles worshiping at the temple. Here, Paul in Ephesians 2 talks about those who are afar off coming and being drawn into the covenants and the promises of Israel. So that you take all of these things, Paul you know, I think in many respects has many of the prophets open before him as he's writing. And it sounds slightly heterodox when I say this, but I always want to say Paul is not, I think, the theological genius that many people attribute to him. They say, oh, he's a theological genius. They think he's an innovator. I want to say, no, no, he's a brilliant summarizer of vast amounts of Old Testament revelation and presenting it very briefly and concisely, but densely as we receive it in these things. So he's not an innovator. He's a summarizer, and he's simply being faithful to all of this Old Testament revelation. So when the reader or the listener sees Scripture talking about a divinely appointed substitute, Mm -hmm. and that substitute appointed from all eternity, Mm -hmm. that's a reflection of what has been called the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis. Absolutely. I'd say in a balder account, it's just appointment, but in a richer account, we would say that, yes, it's a covenantal appointment, and there are many passages of Scripture that would point us in that direction. What is the connection between the covenant of redemption and what our theologians came to call the order of salvation? And again, more Latin, right? Mm -hmm. If office hours is good for nothing, (laughs) it's a good place to pick up a little theological Latin. And the Latin expression is the ordo salutis, which is what? First of all, what is the order of salvation? And then what's the connection with the covenant of redemption? Uh, The order of salvation is the logical arrangement of the various elements of our redemption. There are some temporal elements to it. For example, election is temporarily uh, prior to our glorification. But when we're talking in terms of effectual calling, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification, Reformed theologians will say that historically, for example, like Edward Lee says, uh, he's a 17th century uh, theologian that was around the time of the Westminster Divines and the composition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. He says that, yeah, we receive all of these benefits at once, but we have to place them in their proper logical relationship. In other words, we can't say that our sanctification comes first because then that places good works prior to our justification. And then some people would say that, well, then that means that our good works are taken into account in our justification. So I says, no, we need to put justification first, but then we can't speak of justification apart from faith. And even though faith and justification occur at the same time, logically speaking, we have to believe before we can be justified. So it's the logical arrangement of the very elements of our redemption. 
And it's important in part because the entire Reformation hinged on this order. The medieval church said, and Rome concluded at the Council of Trent, that we are received by God because, and to the degree, we are progressively inherently sanctified. And the Reformers said, no, we are being progressively gradually sanctified because we have been received by God, accepted by him, on the basis of what Christ has done, which has been credited to us. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Peter Martyr Vermeegli talks about justification being the foundation, Calvin the hinge upon which all religion and piety turns. So yeah, it's justification in that sense is foundational. It's the immovable foundation that secures our place before God in terms of the forgiveness of our sins and the reception of righteousness. And from there, then we are progressively transformed into the image of Christ. But sort of like the covenant of redemption, Mm -hmm. the category of the Ordo Salutis has come Mm -hmm. under question, Mm -hmm. particularly in the 20th century. And Mm -hmm. there have even been people who have written that we need to, and I'm quoting here, move beyond Ordo Salutis thinking. Mm -hmm. That it's the uh, remnant of a bygone age and just something that is in sort of like you're digging around in Grandpa's attic. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that. Here's a piece of equipment from the 19th century, that, <laughs> a piece of medical equipment that no one would dare use today. Right. So we need to get rid of that. Right. Are you prepared to clean out your attic that way, John? <laughs> no, no, not at all. And in fact, far from outdated, I think it's ever relevant. It's always relevant in that. And this is where I think the uh, the connections lie. Both Bavink and Voss explicitly say that the order of salvation is based upon the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or, you know, in more technical terms, you could say that the order of salvation follows the covenant of redemption. Substantively, this idea is present in the Reformation. You see it, for example, in David Dixon's speech that we talked about in the previous episode, where Dixon was trying to explain why the Arminian ordering of redemption was out of alignment with the scriptures, in that they were trying to somehow include the believer's good works and perseverance in the order of salvation, or at least in redemption in general. And so he was appealing to, no, the covenant of redemption is fundamentally prior, not only temporally, but also logically in the sense that our redemption is based exclusively upon the work of Christ. And so the way I summarize it in the book is I say that the order of salvation mirrors the nature of our God, and it mirrors the relationships that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share among one another, so that there is no application of redemption, which is chiefly the work of the Spirit, apart from the prior work of redemption that the Son accomplishes. Or, in simpler terms, there is no redemption applied apart from redemption accomplished. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Sometimes the doctrine of the covenant of redemption has been criticized as omitting the Holy Spirit. Because traditionally, when our writers wrote about this, they didn't elaborate much about the role of the Spirit in this. So, is the doctrine of the covenant of redemption binitarian or is it trinitarian? I think I know how you're going to answer this question, (laughs) since the title of your second book is The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. But help us to connect those two things, since the Spirit didn't always get discussed. I think that it's very much been unfair of contemporary historians to accuse classic Reformed theologians of sub-Trinitarianism, because I think that they fail to read these 
discussions in the greater context of their theology. As I mentioned before, and even in the last episode, there have been two typical formulations of the covenant of redemption. There's what I would call a Christological formulation and then a Trinitarian formulation. But when I say Trinitarian, I don't mean that the Christological formulation is any less Trinitarian. Rather, I think the majority report, at least as best as I've been able to tell, is that Reformed theologians opted for the Christological formulation because they looked in the scriptures and they saw all of the dialogues that we find in scripture between the Father and the Son. You never see the Spirit speaking. You never see the Spirit really spoken to in the Scriptures. So it's sort of an unfair test mm-hmm. is it, that people have set. And then when the formulation doesn't meet the test, they say, aha, right. you're not Trinitarian. Right. No, absolutely. Yes. The 17th century Reformed theologians were being, in this sense, I think, very strictly exegetical, you know, saying that we can't put the Spirit here if the Scriptures doesn't put the Spirit here. Now, some people still might say, well, that's still sub-Trinitarian. And I say, no, because in the broader context of their theology, the way that they typically put it together, and I think Owen was an example of this, is that there was a Trinitarian council that is not the covenant of redemption, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agree that the Father and Son will covenant. So they always work in the Spirit. It's just in a different place. So the way I explain this is I say that Christ The Son of God alone died on the cross. The Spirit didn't die, and the Father didn't die. That doesn't mean that we're somehow Unitarian just because we say the Son only dies on the cross. That's important. Acknowledging and accounting for the distinct works Mm -hmm. of the distinct persons Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that one is not Trinitarian. Correct. So in this case, these, what I call them again, Christological formulations, is that they believe it's part of the doctrine of Christ, not part of the doctrine of the Trinity per se. That doesn't mean that they're any less Trinitarian. And I think it's particularly important to note that the Reformed theologians at this point were in a locked death battle, if you will, with uh, Socinians, anti-Trinitarians at this point. And I've not read any Socinian works that have said, aha, you are anti-Trinitarian at heart since you advocate this doctrine. Far from it. In fact, they used this doctrine Mm -hmm. to strengthen, reinforce their doctrine of the Trinity. Absolutely, because the anti-Trinitarians would reject the idea that the Son as fully God was covenanting with the Father as fully God, you know, that he was actually there in eternity. So this was something of a firewall set up against anti-Trinitarianism. Two more things as we begin to draw this discussion to a close. It's been alleged that in the past, in Reformed Orthodoxy, and I don't think this is true, but it's been alleged that eternity swallowed up history. But in the 19th and 20th centuries, it seems to me that the reverse has been true, that history tends to swallow up eternity. And so biblical theology, biblical studies, exegesis, and even systematic theology has tended to be more focused on the history of redemption. And so we've sort of neglected the eternal behind systematics. And that might be more true now Mm -hmm. than ever before. So you're sort of swimming upstream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why is it so important to swim upstream in this regard and to remind ourselves about the reality of eternity and this eternal intra-Trinitarian agreement? I mean, the simplest answer is, is because the Bible talks about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's important. I mean, it really is in Holy Scripture. Absolutely, yeah. I think that for whatever reason, people have accused the Reformed tradition of being speculative as points with its doctrine of predestination, but yet 
at the same time, it's in the Bible. It's irrefutable. And even our opponents would say that it's in the Bible in terms of Arminian theologians would say that election is spoken of in the Bible. Obviously, we have significant disagreement as to how that is defined and what it means. But the most fundamental level is that this is what's in the Bible. And I find that the emphasis, for example, upon narrative theology, as helpful as that has been helping us understand, you know, the story of redemption or the history of redemption, it's often been to the exclusion of saying who God is and what the triune God has done in eternity. And I think that, for example, with the recent debates that have gone on in the last, say, 10 years or so, or maybe even 20 years over both justification as well as union with Christ, as I have not seen, as best as I can tell, as best as I've read, any real discussion about the eternal origins of these historical realities. I've not seen any discussion of that, and one of the reasons why I wanted to look into this is to say, well, how can you establish the believer's good works as being somehow constitutive of his justification if Christ alone was appointed as covenant surety? according to Hebrews 7.22, the sole legal guarantor of our covenant uh, life. How can we somehow squeeze our good works into the picture if this has all been decided in eternity among Father, Son, and Spirit to bring this about? So those are some of the issues. And in terms of, say, the order of salvation, the assumption is, is oh, this has been squeezed out of one text, Romans 8.29 and 30. And if you take that away, the doctrine goes away. Well, no, if you read the historic cases and arguments for the order of salvation, it's like the covenant of redemption. You could pull away Romans 8.29 and 30, and there are still numerous other texts that speak to the reality, as well as that give us the link between history or redemption applied and eternity in terms of this eternal intertrinitarian agreement where the plan is conceived, if you will. So yeah, I think that the categories are vital. The doctrine is really important, if only because the scriptures talk about them, but more so because it tells us that the God of eternity is the same God who redeems in history. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.